Everybody gets a piece, we're going mainstream. Everybody's gonna eat, we're going mainstream. All my family is singing. See you on mainstream, we're going mainstream. Wall Street to Melrose Avenue. We're going mainstream. Venture capitalists to athletes to creators. Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. On today's episode, we go to Europe, and specifically Berlin, a region where some of the most exciting activity in the VC world is occurring. We have Philip Dames, a founding partner at Cherry Ventures, a pan-European early-stage VC fund that has almost 700 million in AUM, lead us in a discussion about why Europe is such a compelling place to invest and why it's on the precipice of an incredible decade in tech. Philip has the founder DNA, Prior to Cherry, he started his first company in 2008, which was a digital marketplace for art and collectibles long before NFTs existed. He then joined Zalando as a member of the founding team where he led business development and international expansion efforts. He founded and was the CEO of the group shopping club, Zalando Lounge, and left Zalando after a successful IPO in 2014 to fully focus on Cherry Ventures. In Cherry, Philip has strived to build the firm that he would have wanted as a founder. They've backed the likes of Auto One Group, Flixbus, Forto, Blink, SellerX, Infarm, and Bunch, amongst many others. Philip and I had a fascinating conversation about the evolution of the European venture ecosystem and why it's such a compelling region to build and invest into category-defining companies. We discussed how his experience as a founder informed how he's built Cherry, how to build a VC from a business perspective, and why Philip is so excited about private markets as he shares his investment thesis into Bunch and what the future of European VC looks like. We also surprised Philip with a few questions from friends who have known him at different stages of his life. So thanks to Steve Sherundolo, the former Bundesliga footballer at Hanover 96, and U.S. men's national team player, and the head coach of LAFC in the MLS. Mario Gatza, the current Bundesliga footballer at Eintracht Frankfurt and the German national team, and an active investor in VC funds and startups, including Cherry, where he's an LP, and Levent Altunel, and Enrico Onomiu the co-founders of Bunch, where Philip and Cherry led a 7.3 million euro seed round last summer. Thanks to all for their thoughtful questions. And thanks, Philip, for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom and experiences. If you like this podcast, you can listen or read more about alts by subscribing at alcosmainstream.substack.com. Welcome back to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Phil, pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. Excited. We have a lot to talk about. You've done so many different things in your life. I actually want to start with a question from one of your friends from a prior life, a former Bundesliga footballer, Steve Schrundelo, who's now the head coach at LAFC. Steve asks, at what point in your career as a footballer did you realize your interest in business and what steps did you take along the way to prepare yourself for that change? Oh, that's, that's so awesome that you got that question from Steve. That's really cool. I think with everything, there's a point where you have to be realistic. Are you good enough to play on a professional level? I love the game. I love football and I still do. I'm actually going to a game of my favorite team tomorrow, but I was always interested in many different things. I loved music. I played instruments and sang. I was interested in business. I wanted to go to university. So I wasn't ready to fully commit to football as a job. Plus, I probably <laughs> wouldn't made it past third division in Germany. So that's probably a good, good call not to. That's fascinating, though. If you think about these may be things people don't necessarily know about you. You're a high-level footballer. You were, as we just found out, a high-level musician as a violinist and a singer. What about those experiences have informed how you've become an elite performer off the field as both a founder and now a venture capitalist. Anyone that plays a sports professionally or even semi-professionally or does music on a semi-professional level, they need to be disciplined. They need to invest a lot of hours, a lot of time. I think that then teaches you a lesson for life. Like nothing comes for free. You have to work for it and you have to improve over time. It's actually something I also love seeing and 
in our founders, when I get to know someone and I realize there's something that they've trained for in their life or something they've accomplished or a you know, intense hobby or a passion that they spend a lot of time on. I think that's a positive sign that someone can stick to it and put the work in. So on that point, something that makes a founder special is usually that they stand out. And actually another question I got was from one of our mutual companies where you led the seed round a company called Bunch, which we'll get into further in the podcast. But Levent and Enrico, the founders of Bunch, they wanted to know what separates good founders from exceptional ones and what are you looking for? I always look for these little dents in the CV. It doesn't have to be a straight line. I think it's better if it's actually a little bit of up and down and trying out things, maybe also having to deal with adversity at some point in your life, whether that was early in life or later in life. I always ask myself the question, what's the unfair advantage? Why should this person, why should she or he be in the best position to build this business, to build this company? And then often these small things, they come in. As a founder, you have to do so many things. It's probably one of the most complex jobs out there. You need to be extremely good at hiring. You need to convince investors of your vision and you need to obviously be very hardworking. You need to be extremely analytical, but you also need to be a people person. I think it's such a strange combination of skill sets that you need to have. They're almost impossible to test for. You need to basically try it and then see if it's a career that's for you. And these small dents, they're definitely a good sign for me. How do you figure that out with first-time founders? Because there may not be evidence that this person is going to be a great founder because they've never done it before. Yeah, I think it's more difficult with first-time founders, of course, because you don't have one or two companies to look at as like, how did they do? You can call as many people as that they've worked with, but you can spend time. I sometimes ask founders for reference, not only from their professional environment, but also from a personal. Sometimes I even spoke to some family members. I do think getting to know each other before an investment is absolutely critical. The journey that you're going to onboard together is a long one. Someone told me once that the average marriage is a lot shorter than the average relationship between a venture capitalist and the founder. So uh, I'm not sure if that's true. I hope not. But it is for sure a very intense relationship. You need to know what you're getting into and you need to click on a personal level. That's probably something I've learned more and more over the year. It's also about having fun together. And if you don't have that feeling of the start, then it's probably not a good idea to invest. I want to cover something that's related to this, but also related to one, the evolution of the European venture ecosystem. And two, your background, which has kind of mirrored the evolution of the European venture ecosystem related to what we just talked about. I think now you're seeing a growing ecosystem that has more and more first-time founders who, instead of coming from banking or consulting, are coming from top tech companies. How do you think about that evolution in Europe broadly? And then I want to get to your background and how that relates to change in the European venture ecosystem. Yeah, I think it is a sign of maturation of an ecosystem that you have more former operators or founders becoming investors. And as you mentioned earlier, also have a lot more repeat founders, people that are not only building their first company, but their second and their third company. This is obviously something that's been the case in the US for decades. Europe wasn't like that. Most investors were actually coming from, as you said, consulting and finance background, and then over time became VCs or private equity investors. And I think it's a new breed of investors that have the advantage to being able to relate more to the founder and the journey of creating a business. It makes a big difference. There's very inconclusive data, by the way, whether ex-operator make better investors. They're some of the most famous in the world. I haven't started a business before. If you look at Bill Gurley, for example, it's not a better type of question. I think, especially for us at early stage, it is being able to relate to the problem that the founder is working on. And then maybe also being a little bit more relaxed about being on a roller coaster of building a business in the early stages, which can be quite chaotic. There's lots of fires burning that you need to put out at the same time. You're juggling many balls. I think having been in that seat at some point, it helps steer, guide, and mentor these companies. I want to touch on something that you referenced, which is that you don't necessarily have to be a founder to be a great investor. And there are examples of past VCs where that's the case. But 
at Cherry, you do talk about being founders first and investors second. You've been a founder. You've sat in their shoes. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so the first thing that we always thought about Cherry as a startup, we wanted to build a brand. We wanted to build a company. We didn't just want to build a fund. So what does it mean, right? When I left Zalando and decided to do Cherry, I wanted to build the fund that I would have liked to have by my side as an operator. That's also why we say founders first. We focus very much about the help that a founder needs from initiation, starting of the company to reaching product market fit. This is also why Cherry doesn't have a growth fund, but we are very, very focused on seed. We have built the entire firm to match that objective. So everyone that works at Cherry has either been former operator or has a specific know-how that's really catered to that particular phase of a company from start to product market fit. That's how we built the entire team. That's how we embed the entire partnership. And that's also why I think Cherry have a unique positioning in the market. And I think that focus is a big part of our position. What did you feel was missing from the venture ecosystem maybe initially in Germany, and now you've obviously expanded offices in London, Stockholm, when you set out to build Cherry? First of all, Europe has come an extremely long way, and there are fantastic investors in Europe right now. Many exciting new funds, more established funds that are staying young and staying hungry. You cannot compare it to the time when I started my first company in Berlin in 2008. Back then, I think we had three or four VCs to pitch to. Most were sort of ex-corporate some of the larger German companies or publishing companies that had their investment arms. I think the successes having started back maybe the beginning of the 2000s and you had the Zalandos, you had the delivery heroes, you had sort of the first generation of successful tech companies in Berlin. I think that has created a new generation of investors. You can almost put this in parallel to how Silicon Valley got created. There, the early success cases in technology gave rise to a community of VCs, of investors that then reinvested their money into the ecosystem. I think this is what we've seen in Europe over the last few decades. And from that perspective, this is also why I believe that Europe has a bright future ahead. What do you feel like the European ecosystem is missing right now that it could benefit from? Compared to the US, Europe's still lacking some growth capital from local funds. It becomes less relevant as companies grow because of course the investor base then becomes more global. And we see actually a lot of US funds coming in at later stages. The seed and early stage game tends to be more local because you also need to be closer to the business. You need to work closer with the companies. And the other aspect is that the US funds are often very, very large funds where it doesn't really make sense to play as much at seed in Europe. I would say the maturity of the ecosystem is on a different level than in the US. And that translates also into a different buyer universe. A lot of the European trade sales that we're seeing, they actually end up being bought by US companies. And that local ecosystem of acquirers is an important element of producing DPI as a fund and having successful outcomes. That's definitely also an area where Europe is still catching up. We do see that changing. For example, we had a billion dollar exit in our portfolio to a German corporate two years ago, which returned the majority of our fund to. It was one of the biggest trade sales to a German corporate in history and marked an important sort of inflection point because it was a time when we also saw the corporate landscape in Europe and in Germany waking up. Okay, wow, there are transactions happening there is an exciting startups, people working on digital products that could be relevant for our core business. But if you compare how many companies, a Google, a Meta, a, a Salesforce, etc. buy, um, then it's of course on a very, very different level than what we have in Europe. One thing that's fascinating to me about Europe is that the proximity to pretty much any city is three, four hour flight maximum. The U.S. is obviously much different, and therefore you have or have had density in certain networks and regions, whereas in Europe you could be based in London and fly to Istanbul or fly to Berlin. Very easy trip. You also mentioned that you think at seed stage it's the local funds that will win, whether it's Cherry in Berlin or Germany more broadly or even kind of surrounding areas. It could be other funds in other parts of Europe. Why do you think that's the case, given the proximity? 
why are funds in other parts of Europe not necessarily able to compete in markets that are not their own as well as the local funds? I do believe that we are competing on a European level. We also have three offices with Cherries. We have an office in London, we have an office in Stockholm, and then our main office is in Berlin and the Dach region, so Germany, Austria, Switzerland still represent in the earlier funds probably around 50% of our investment activity. It is a big focus. Being local obviously means being very entrenched into the networks, being able to see things very, very early. And then also using the power of your network, whether it comes to hiring for these companies at an early stage or helping with business generations in the early stages. I think that obviously is an advantage if you have feet on the ground. But it's also not a prerequisite, especially if you see the, I would say, less penetrated European tech hubs like Lisbon or Warsaw in Poland or Tallinn in Estonia. Very, very few funds have offices there, very few European funds. Still, people spend time there, are connected to the local angels, and hence sort of running their strategy of covering any of these respective tech hubs in Europe. And then, of course, you have the big ones, Berlin, London, and to an extent, maybe Paris, where we have a much stronger sort of game of local funds. So on that point, and I feel like this has come up in conversation constantly, is the evolution of seed to A to B to C is you have the local funds who end up funding a company first. Then the Series A funds, probably more likely to be based in London or Pan-Europe, are the ones who come in and do the Series A's. And then BC and beyond is either European or growth investors, maybe from the US. Is that something that you think will stay the same or will that change over time? I think the world has definitely become smaller. COVID obviously taught us that. We've always seen it, but I think COVID was really the peak of US money investing into earlier stage companies in Europe. The market is getting more global. Yes, it's professionalizing overall, which is a good thing. It's a good thing for founders because they can work with more high quality investors. I think what will play a more important role also going forward is syndication. So maybe having one local fund and then adding a US fund to the mix because the company is in a business, let's say it's a software as a service company, and they already know at some point they're going to expand to the US. To get this expertise around the table early on makes a lot of sense. Now, does a company always need to have a US investor at seed? Definitely not, because I think there's enough business to be built in Europe and on the path to product market fit, it's very likely that a large US fund won't be able to support that much. But at later stages, Series A, that may very well make sense. And also, if you ask founders, in Germany or in Europe overall, they like to have a diverse set of investors because everyone brings a different perspective. Everyone has specific domain or geographical expertise. And just having a mix of these people together is really important. What matters at seed is that you know someone and you have someone by your side that's really able to support. I think seeds is quite hands-on and founders have the tendency to pick someone that has local expertise. And to your point from earlier with your billion dollar exit to a German corporate, now you can have local investments with more local or regional exits. So I think a lot of people in the past had thought, oh, you need to go to the U.S. after building a business in Europe to be able to build a really big business. And sure, the U.S. is a big market, but it also feels like Europe is a big enough market. And there's plenty of data now that shows, too, that if you think about the European ecosystem, UK, Israel, places that have produced the most venture-backed unicorns outside of the US and China, and Germany's a fast follower, Sweden's a fast follower, France is a fast follower. Does this maybe anecdotal point of evidence point to something bigger, which is that maybe you don't need to expand beyond Europe to build a really big business. And the ambition could be just to build a massive business in Europe and that's success. I think it really depends on the business that you're in. I do believe if you look at Europe and I think it's around 500 unicorns, although I, I don't like the term and I think that number is probably going to change over the next couple of months. If you're a marketplace company or you're a neo bank like an N26 or a Revolut, or you are one of our portfolio companies, Flixbus, for example, that just recently expanded to the US, but at a very, very large scale, you can build substantial businesses in Europe alone. If you're in software, generally the playing field is more global. You're also competing with US products from the start because you can buy a software product from the US. And then your market is global from day one. I think Europe rather had the problem that 
founders thought too much about, okay, let's apply a US business model to the European market or sometimes even like to one country. And I think this was also the rise of one of the most important, I would say, initiators of the German ecosystem, Rocket Internet, who became very, very famous for copying business models to the US. The great thing is that this time is definitely over. Founders that are starting companies in Europe have global ambitions. They don't just want to win in Germany. They want to win in Europe. They want to win in the world. They also want to win in the US. That has created outcomes like a Revolut, you know, like an Adyen, like a Klarna, like a Silonis, like a UiPath. These are all global businesses that, that, that have been started in Europe. Do you think that points to ambitions being changed? Or were ambitions always there? It just maybe the evolution of venture market amount of capital technology had just changed? I think it needed a few more things than ambition. And ambition is one of the points. It's also about becoming more self-confident. You see the first couple of successes, you want to swing bigger and go for more impact. But then you also need the ingredients to be able to do so, which are, for example, investors being able to take more risk. And if you looked at European VC 10, 15 years ago, it was more about downside protection than upside generation. And you could see that also in the terms, which are very, very different to what you would see in the US, for example. That investment ecosystem needed to emancipate, grow, become more confident and become more American in a way. Founders needed to, and the early successes definitely helped. I would say it's all a sort of flywheel. Once the success is there, people become more confident, become more ambitious. If you look at the typical German engineer 20 years ago, after university, wanted to go work at BMW or Mercedes or Porsche or maybe Siemens. Today, these people work for startups because they know they can build so much more. They can be so much more independent. They can have so much more freedom, creativity that they can put into their jobs. And that's really also a mind shift that has happened in Europe over the last couple of years. It's certainly happening on the founder side. And the VC side is following suit. But in order for the VC side to be able to do that, as you mentioned, VCs have gotten more comfortable doing that rather than focusing on downside protection. The onus also falls on the LPs. How do you think LPs need to continue to change their mindset, both in Europe, allocating to European funds, as well as LPs outside of Europe who should be allocating to European funds? I think these are really two different topics. One is get more experienced LPs to invest in European ventures. And the answer to that is, of course, they should, because Europe is an important part of the venture landscape. It is one of the technology hubs in the world, and there's really, really exciting outcomes being created in Europe. And that's true more than ever. I think if I was an LP and I would do my allocation, how much do I want to allocate to venture and how much of that should be in the US or in Asia? A part of that should and must, in fact, be in Europe. That's, I think, part one of the question. Part two is what needs to change with European LPs. And that's really interesting because we have so much capital sitting with these big corporates in Germany, also the pension funds, the insurances, these are massive, massive businesses. And if you look at the US and you compare it, how the venture capital ecosystem actually got created, it was through exactly those LPs, through the pension funds, the big endowments allocating um, part of their resources into venture. And that hasn't happened in Europe to such a degree. There's first movers that are starting to do so, but they are still quite conservative in their asset allocation, rather prefer real estate and more conservative asset classes. Most even don't do private equity. Very, very few do venture. This is also the reason why, to my earlier point, the growth funds aren't as big and there aren't as many in Europe because simply there aren't that many of those very, very large LPs that are ready to commit substantial checks into venture funds. This is definitely one of the areas where Europe is still lagging behind. How does that change? It changes with a few things. Obviously, the government is doing some push there, encouraging certain groups to invest in the ventures. That's nice, but venture is an attractive asset class. European venture is an attractive asset class. So at the end of the day, it should be the market 
that pushes for more allocation into this asset class. But of course, there are limitations with regards to how much risk can a pension fund take, and these are regulatory. I think that's point one that needs to be worked on. The second thing is that there needs to also be a little bit of a generational shift that is happening. You see younger teams becoming decision makers and really being much more open to this asset class. We're seeing some really interesting developments. Some of our biggest LPs are European, but then again, we got the majority of our LP commitments for Cherry outside of Europe, namely from the US and from Canada. On that point, we actually met on a flight out of Berlin while you were en route to visit some of your US LPs, which I found fascinating. And these were LPs not just based on the coasts, and they were allocating to Cherry. And these are institutional LPs. So first of all, congratulations. And second of all, I think that speaks to why Europe is so exciting. It's not just the select few LPs, but it's allocators who realize they need to have exposure to Europe. What did you pitch to US LPs as to why they should have exposure to Europe? The pitch is relatively easy, to be fair. If you look at the outcomes from Europe and and then the opportunity that we have ahead of us in technology in Europe. So, of course, an Adyen, a Zalando, my previous business, a Revolut, a Spotify, a Wise. These are all household names that LPs recognize. And they were like, yes, I want a piece of that. And I want an early piece of that too. How do I get exposure to an ecosystem that is still also trading at a discount to U.S. valuations? Of course, the gap is closing as the venture landscape is becoming more global, but I think it just needs to be part of every portfolio. There is no reason anymore to say that the biggest companies in the world can only be created in Silicon Valley. That's just not true anymore. They can be created anywhere in the world. So if you want to have a broad exposure to technology as an investor, it also means you need some exposure to Europe. That's sort of the pitch on why Europe's great. And then of course, to be very honest, a lot of the, especially the early pitches were about us. We hadn't done venture before. Our fund two was really our fund one because our fund one was a tiny angel fund where we invested our personal money that we made from Zalando and then invited some friends to invest. So it became a small fund over time, but there was no single institutional LP in it. So when we came to market for our first institutional fund, we called it fund two, which in hindsight really helped because people were like, oh, you guys are not a first timer. Maybe I can have a look at that. <laughs> and which is something we actually only realized later on because we didn't know it was so important for many LPs. And then people just wanted to see us. They wanted to hear our story. They wanted to hear our background. They wanted to hear from our founders, something that we had from the very beginning is that the founders that we've invested in, they are invested in Cherry. And I think this is amazing and also something that we're very proud of is that, for example, the founders of Flixbus, a company where we let the seed round, they just took over Greyhound in the US, big household US brand that is now turning green because the Flixbuses are green. Just that very, very small investment in the seed round. The journey of this company is a good example. That's fascinating when you think about the evolution of both Cherry and the ecosystem at large. I want to go from macro to micro and focus on what you said about starting very small with angel checks. And you also referenced that you're building Cherry as if it's a business. When you started Cherry, did you have an idea of what you wanted this business to become and how you'd build this business? Or did that kind of come along the way? No, I think that idea was very clear. We wanted to build the fund that as I said, we would have liked to have when we were operators, we wanted to be the first call for any early stage founder in Europe. We wanted to be the leading early stage venture fund in Europe. We had all these things in mind. We felt definitely there was a big gap in the European market that we knew someone would fill. We wanted to fill it. Obviously, there's many great funds that did the same and contributed to the current stage of European venture. But we wanted to be at the forefront of that from the very beginning. And that strategy hasn't changed. We got asked so many times during our last fundraise for our fund for, hey, why don't you guys raise a growth fund and we could invest so much more money, etc. And we've really tried to say no to all of this distraction. Of course, our fund has grown also from generation to generation. Seed rounds in the meantime have also grown significantly. They've more than doubled since we started investing. And we also realized in our first funds, we wished we would have had more reserves for follow-on. So in the end, we also changed our model slightly into something which is a little bit more sort of reserves heavy to just have more firepower than also to continue invest into follow-on rounds. 
But in general, we've stayed very, very focused from the very beginning to today. So a slightly larger fund, and maybe it's because of what you just mentioned. If we go by the adage, your fund size is your strategy, has this slightly larger fund that you just raised, does that change your strategy at all or not really? Not really. Of course, uh, we cannot uh, do 100 pre-seed investments with this fund because we would just go crazy. Our model wouldn't work. And of course, our fund size also means that we have to be a little bit more disciplined on a very, very early start. But we are a high conviction investor, which means we don't do a ton of deals a year. It's 12, 15 investments, which is not that many for a seed fund. We try and go for meaningful ownership in these businesses, which is also one of the differences, by the way, of a typical US seed rounds, where you oftentimes have many different people, many different funds involved that all buy a small little piece. In Europe, it's a little bit different. You oftentimes have an angel round, which is more like what I just described in the US, but then the seed round oftentimes ends up being the first institutional round with a one fund or two funds coming in and getting to proper ownership. So that's what we try and do. Obviously, with increasing fund size, our initial investment checks have become slightly bigger as well, but they also needed to, given the increasing competitiveness of the European seed landscape. On that point, so you have to write slightly larger checks into seeds. I want to ask a question from another one of your friends, Mario Getze, the footballer and also ah, okay. investor in yeah. a number of funds, including yours. And he wants yes. to know, related yeah. to this point, that Cherry's a cool name and brand, very well established with great performance. So he's very happy to be an LP in your fund and sharing a good relationship with you as well as co-investing. But on the point of you having to write larger checks at seed, and obviously there's times when a company may only need to raise million, half a million, whatever it may be. Have you ever thought about setting up an elite angel syndicate or scout slash super angel program? First of all, heads off to Mario because he scored the decisive goal for Germany in the World Cup the last time where we became world champions, unfortunately, a long time ago. Obviously very proud to have Mario as one of our entrepreneurial LPs. And, and to his question, we do that. And we have an angel entity. We oftentimes do syndications with the angels from our networks or entrepreneur investors that I just mentioned. Almost all of them are active angels. They send us their deal flow. We involve them in our investments. So it's really also nurturing and growing this ecosystem of more and more professional angels that are also involving next to the professionalizing fund ecosystem. You see that also with the ongoing trend of single GPs. So smaller funds, super angels, then at some point turn GPs that raise a little bit of money to launch sort of a smaller fund setup. A development that we've seen already for the past couple of years in the US and then now definitely also in Europe. It's a great segue into an investment that you made last year into a company that's been on our podcast and is creating some of that infrastructure called Bunch. What about the evolution of the ecosystem as well as maybe the aforementioned experience you just talked about enabled you to say, we should invest in a company like Bunch? Going back to the start of our conversation, the first thing that excited us was the team with Levent and Enrico. I think they have a really unique story and experience having both worked on the private and on the public markets and then also identifying this, this problem, frankly. When we looked at Bunch, we really saw the need for a sort of working, operating or an efficient operating system for private market investing in Europe. There's a lot of different processes that some of our US colleagues know this notary system in Europe, really difficult to get to voting decisions with larger and growing shareholder base. So we definitely like the idea of Bunch sort of becoming this operating system and also then handling money flows into SPVs that can be created by a bunch, providing FX, providing additional services, which I think is exciting. Cleaning up your cap table as a founder, as you have these really, really long lists of investors that are in your company and you need to chase and they're on holidays. There were just a lot of things that we liked about the initial pitch and about the initial idea and believe, okay, this product really needs to exist in Europe. And we've seen different, but some parallel successful companies grow in the US, like Acarta, for example, a company that you also invested in that didn't exist in Europe. This is basically the opportunity that bunches after. Why do you think this hasn't yet existed? Because there were attempts at this. AngelList tried to build AngelList for Europe at one point in time. What about the market now is different that makes 
possible for Bunch to build a business that will work? I think there's on regulation and the same time progress. For example, if you look at our notary system, and then also obviously different ways of managing that through technology. If you look at data collection, governments having open APIs for public registers and these kind of things. But then most importantly, I think it probably could have been built earlier. And the reason why others have failed is simply because Europe's very complicated. It's a lot of small countries, relatively uh, different legal systems. You have different payment methods in different countries. You have different registrars. You cannot compare it to the US where basically all the companies of Delaware are registered inks. It's a really complex beast. If I'm an angelist, I have to ask myself the question, do I really want to tackle this? Or do I stay in the US where I probably still have plenty of room to grow? I think this is the opportunity. And this is also why you need a team that is ready to deal with this type of complexity. For those who are not as familiar with investing in German startups, I just want you to explain what the notary process actually is like, because we've gone through this. <laughs> it is quite different than if you're an investor in U.S. startups investing in a Delaware C-Corp, as an example. Which is, by the way, the reason why a lot of companies flip to the U.S. At some point, we are in the process of doing this with one of our Polish portfolio companies there right now preparing an ink flip also because their investor base becomes more international. The original notary system in your countries in Europe is very different from the US. It basically means wherever you acquire a share in a company, that transaction needs to be notarized. And notaries are basically lawyers that have been appointed by the state and they have the power to testify the factuality of any written agreement. You go there when you buy a house, when you buy a flat a contract all needs to be notarized. You also need to go there when you invest in a company. And if you are from a country that doesn't have the system, the notary doesn't just simply accept you calling them and saying, yeah, it's all fine. I want to invest. This is all okay. But they actually require you to go to your consulate and get an apostille that the consulate has to send over to the notary. So the notary actually has proof that you are in fact a existing legal entity, an existing person that is in fact investing in a company. It all sounds incredibly complicated and the truth is it is, and it's very outdated. It's something that also the European ecosystem as a whole has to deal with. It doesn't make things faster. That's for sure. The good things you don't need it for things like convertible notes. So there's obviously also ways of sort of getting around it. But I think for that particular reason, also a bunch makes total sense in the market here. How much does the streamlining of private capital markets infrastructure with things like bunch and there are other solutions, everything from pre-investment and distribution to other smaller investors with the likes of a moon fair as an example, or post-investment things like fund accounting valuation, metrics, et cetera, that's all being sprung up in Europe. How does that change how much capital gets put into the European ecosystem from, as you say, these larger international investors? I do think it has the potential to change things. For the ones that aren't familiar with Moonfair, they are basically democratizing access to private equity investments. You can buy a smaller share of a private equity fund through Moonfair, who then pool investors and then invest with one entity into the target fund. Of course, these are not the big tickets. If you're a Pimera or EQT, they won't make up for the majority of your AUM, of course. But they change something different. They definitely change awareness for private market investments. They educate the user and the customer. They make the asset class more accessible. I think that's a good thing. It's helping to put private markets on the map. And these can also be very sizable and successful businesses. I think that's a really interesting way to think about the European market. I want to circle back to something that you said before that's related to this, but also more related to Cherry from a business building perspective. I'm fascinated by asset management in general and that asset managers are business builders too. We don't always think of it that way, but you're building a business. And yes, you're going to have the infrastructure, things like Bunch will help, Moonfair, iCapital, et cetera, could potentially help you as well with the likes of access. And these are all parts of building a business. You said something that stood out to me, which is you want to stay small and focused as a firm. That's why you didn't raise a growth fund. You stayed focused on seed. And as a true entrepreneur, you know that focus is what's important. But in the asset management world, bigger, i.e. more AUM, is often what's considered business success. Sure, in the venture side, 
carry and returns are as well. And that's how you'll be able to continue to raise funds focused on a specific sector strategy, whatever it may be. But how do you balance the idea of staying small and building a business in the asset management world, given that building a business is what you set out to do? I think you ask a very, very relevant question. My answer is I don't care so much about being big. I want to be the best. And I think you can only be the best when you're focused. And that comes with a certain size. You can, of course, grow and we will grow. I think we have a lot of potential to grow in the segment that we're in. If you look at the different geographies that we are still not covering, but at the end, there's also a ceiling and there's a cap, what makes sense at any given asset class and the early stage venture is a different asset class than late stage venture. So yeah, I'd rather be not winning the AUM game, but being considered as the best fund when it comes to helping founders succeed at the early stage. It's music to a lot of LPs ears on that point. What advice would you give to emerging managers who are trying to build their own version of Cherry? I would say, think about your edge, think about your focus and why you. The best founders, they get to choose who they want to raise money from. So you need to have a good answer to that question, why you are the one that they would take the money from. It can be a vertical focus, it can be a geographical focus, it can be deep sector expertise, it can be different things can also be being the nicest guy and taking them out to drinks. And don't think that's very scalable, but that's in fact how a lot of angels win deals. So you need to think about that. We are ourselves still an emerging manager, but I'm also personally invested in a lot of smaller funds, a lot of solo GP funds. I like to work with them. Of course, it's also a bit strategic for us because they tend to be even earlier than us. So for us, it's also a good thing to be close to them and work hand in hand on syndications or showing us their best performing pre-seed portfolio. But I think it's that stay focused and really think about the firm strategically, not just how much money do I have and what's the corresponding fund model, but also what kind of brand do I want to build? How do I want to be perceived in the market? And secondly, what type of team do I want around me? How can this team be as complementary as possible? sort of as in line as possible with the overall brand strategy, something that we spend a ton of time on. There's a nuance embedded in your answer there, which is around you have had to grow your business, even though you've stayed focused on the same thing, seed stage, you've grown your fund size, you've had to grow your team. As a founder, you grew Zalando from early stage all the way through to IPO. Not everybody as an operator goes through not just zero to one or one to 10, but 10 to a hundred and hundred to a thousand. You've done that now as a VC as well. How do you think about that evolution of the different stages of building a VC business? And are you doing a lot of different things than you were before in terms of your day-to-day? -day? And has that changed how you've thought about the business of venture? I think it's all a learning journey. I would say I probably learned as much from my first startup, which was almost a complete failure when I moved to Berlin after school, than I've learned from the incredible growth journey at Zalando. Both things are probably once in a lifetime. I think I also learned a lot when we were doing our angel fund, starting with the question around how much reserves should we keep to why does ownership matter to then the first fundraise where we probably had to do a couple hundred meetings to convince LPs to the last fund for the first time, also saying no to a lot of LPs that wanted to invest and thinking about fund size, then coming into a market that is very, very different than 2021. I think what doesn't change, and my first company, Tamundo, hasn't changed, it. Zalando hasn't changed, it. Cherry, our first angel fund hasn't changed, you always need to work hard. You need to be focused and you need to be in a mindset of learning and growth. That's probably the most important thing. On that point, what do you think has been the most important learning as you've been at Cherry? I would probably say it's not just a cherry learning, but it's generally since I've been in business is the importance of relationships and the importance of working with good people. It's the same whether you're a founder, you want to raise from an investor, like who's that person? It's a matter of trust. And similarly for us picking founders that we want to work with is like how important this relationship is working with our LPs, then co-investors. 
I'm just not making compromises on this anymore. I think everyone probably has to learn this sometimes the hard way. Sometimes you work with people where you're like, I shouldn't have done business with that person. I've just become much, much more stricter with myself with that regard. And I think it serves me well and it serves us well. We want to be successful. Obviously, we work hard for it, but then we also want to be surrounded by, by good people and have fun together. And I think this is probably the biggest learning for me. It's a great piece of advice. Great segue into the quick fire round that I like to end with. So is that the best piece of advice you've ever received? And if not, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, no, it's not advice I received. It's something I would say I learned the hard way. The best piece of advice was when I entered the industry and I was freaking out about the company going bust. And one of the much more experienced investors came to me and said, relax, Philip, it's just money. And I think that's sometimes important to realize that you have to but aware of the things that you can influence and aware of the things that, that you cannot if you want to keep a sane mind. It's a really important point, right? It's like you can't control everything. And I think that gets to what you said earlier in, in sport. There's things you can learn from being an elite athlete or elite musician, and you can only focus on the things you can control. So related to that, who's your favorite football team? Borussia Dortmund. That was fast, huh? That was I'm fast. I'm going to see them play the DFB Cup tomorrow. I, unfortunately, I was in the stadium also on Saturday. I saw them play Bayern Munich and that wasn't a great performance, but it doesn't change my love for the team. <laughs> I don't think the love for a team ever, ever changes, no matter how good or bad they are. As unfortunate or painful as that can be. It can be very painful, yeah. <laughs> it can indeed. I'm a Washington Commanders football fan, so I've had 20 plus years of pain. <laughs> so yes, I can certainly relate to pain when it comes to sports. And hopefully the other teams that I like are not in that position. What's the area that you're most excited about in venture? Right now, I would say it's healthcare. I think this is an exciting area, especially in Europe, because now again, we're getting to a new era with much less regulation, different ways of using technology. I'm watching that space very, very closely. Similarly, sort of sustainability and impact. If you look at climate change as one of the key challenges of our generation and how founders are responding to that challenge, I think is fascinating. There is a lot happening and not all companies will be successful. But just if I see the influx of talent, people that not just want to build something where they make money, but also build something that has an impact, I think that will definitely give rise to a group of very, very exciting businesses. And this is also a space where Europe's really at the forefront. If you look at the innovation that's been going on in that field, and also as an LP, if I want to have exposure to it in, in some way, then Europe's the place to be. On that point, in your mind, is this where Europe really excels, where the government can tend to be very involved in things like pushing forward things like climate change, even backing institutionally the private capital markets? There's the European Investment Bank, European Investment Fund, which they're putting a lot of resources behind venture and startups. France is doing the same as a government. Do you think that is something that could set Europe apart going forward? I think at the end, we shouldn't need the government for that. That's my honest opinion. Yes, the EIF, they helped kick this venture ecosystem off. And I think if you look at their exposure, a lot of European funds have the EIF as, as one of their cornerstone investors. But at the end of the day, this needs to be a market where people generate returns. And that has nothing to do with governance and hopefully little to do with politics. It's a great segue into the next question. Paint a picture of what the future of the European venture ecosystem looks like over the next 10 years. I think we're gonna see a lot more great outcomes in Europe. If you look at the areas that I've just mentioned, healthcare, climate tech, sustainability, but also within FinTech, within crypto, where Europe's also forefront of innovation. There's so many areas where I truly believe the best companies in the world will be built in Europe. And I think that goes along with a more maturing ecosystem, more daring founders, a flywheel that is already turning, but will start to turn faster and faster. I think this is the exciting part of it. This is also the reason why I'm very, very long Europe and I'm excited that I'm an investor here. I think that's a great way to summarize a lot of what we've talked about. This will be somewhat of a corny joke, but the cherry may be on top. <laughs> so I want to end with the question that I ask everyone at the end, which is, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? 
I'm an art collector. I think this is an asset class that is tricky. It's highly transparent, but it's also a lot of fun because you get to live with the things that you collect and buy. This is for me a big hobby where, you know, of course it's also nice to make some money with it and things appreciate and value, but it's not the prime motivation. It's about experiencing art, living with it. How do you think about art when it comes to the idea of a passion asset? We've talked about art and passion assets on this podcast. Do you think that becomes an investment type that becomes more broad-based and even institutionalized if the infrastructure, like what a bunch is building, but something akin to that from an infrastructure perspective for other passion assets. Do you think that's something that will take hold in a place like Europe where people want to invest into these assets and think of them as investable assets, not just as collector items? It could, for sure. Also a bunch, this is maybe not the next asset class that they will go into, but it's definitely a potential to expand the offering towards art, for example, and like you could say watches or old timer or whatever, any sort of physical asset that people collect and see as a good asset class. There's companies like Masterworld in the US, which basically slice and dice an artwork and then sell it to investors that can then invest a few hundred euros into a Picasso or whatever. This is not why I collect art, but I can definitely see why it's attractive to many people. And I do believe that there can be some interesting businesses being built in that space. Maybe life will imitate art in Europe, as we've talked about with the evolution of the European venture ecosystem and everything that's been done. And you really are at the forefront of this, both from the founder side, now from the investor side. So Philip, thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Pleasure to have you. Thanks, Michael. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me and asking all these good questions. And most importantly, pulling all of these friends in. That's exciting to see that they had something to ask. Thanks to Steve, Mario, and Levent and Enrico. It was awesome to have their participation. And, and also what I wanted to cover was different parts of your life and people from different parts of your life in all different ways and match that with the trajectory of your career path as well. Yeah, awesome. Thanks a lot for that, Michael. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at Goes Alt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going mainstream.